Friends, I love a good graphic tee, don't you? Did you know that I just launched my new magic wear? Yes, that's right. I have new designs, colors, clothing, cups, and hats. You can celebrate the love of reading by rocking an open the magic hat to the beach, a picture books are my jam shirt to the gym, and sip your chai tea latte on Fridays like me in a all new, all the confetti moments logo mug. Order today by visiting my shop at bit.ly backslash magic wear store. Again, that's B-I-T dot L-Y backslash M-A-G-I-C-W-E-A-R-S-T-O-R-E. All right, let's open the magic together and spread the love of reading all around the world. Hey friends, welcome to the Confetti Moments Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Hinshaw. I believe that picture books open the magic for all readers. Today, open your heart and let all the book feels in. It's going to be so much fun. Let's open the magic. Welcome to another episode of Confetti Moments. I'm so glad you're here today. On today's episode, I get a chance to sit down with Dan Santag. We're going to talk about his book, After the Fall and Anxiety. You are in for a bookful treat. Without further ado, welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, my name is Dan Santat. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1975. Parents moved here when I was about three years old. I've lived in the Southern California area ever since I was three. Uh, so you'll have Los Angeles and then you'll have Santa Barbara. And then in between, there's like this agricultural community known as Ventura County. And I grew up in a little town called Camarillo and I grew up there for most of my life. Uh, you know, my parents, they wanted me to grow up and be a doctor. Uh, that was, uh, my real passion was in art. Like I really loved cartoons and, and drawing pictures of Garfield and things in Sunday comics and things like that. And, um, as I, as I grew older, you know, it was, I was an only child. So that was the thing that I spent most of my time doing. And, uh, over time, I just got better and better at it. Uh, you know, just, just by practice, just by repetition and just wanting to be able to draw as well as the artists that I admired. And then, uh, you know, I went off to a four-year college and uh, got, myself a, got myself a microbiology degree. I thought I was going to be a dentist uh, down in UC San Diego. Uh, and then it was my college roommates that really inspired me to try to pursue uh, a career in, in, in art. Uh, originally, I wanted to be an animator. And, uh, and, and then... The, the real kicker was that they wanted me to just see if I could get into art school because there was something really hardwired in me just to convince myself that art was just a hobby. And so they, they really just kind of, they, they pressed that, they pressed that nerve of saying, well, just see if you can get into art school. And so, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I think, I think I was curious. And, and so I went out and put together a portfolio and I applied and then on my graduation day, my parents, uh, you know, they were really excited because they thought I was heading off to dental school. And, uh, you know, on graduation day, I said, I got accepted into art school and I think I'm going to do that instead. And so I went off to art school 
uh, with my parents. To get, my parents, surprisingly, I thought they were going to disown me, but they turned out to be very supportive. They said, we just want you to be happy. And so I remember going off to art school and thinking I was really behind the curve, you know, just kind of coming to a school where everybody's parents encouraged them to be artists and things like that. So I really worked, gosh, I worked, I worked crazy insane hours, just kind of feeling like I had to keep up. But I think what ended up happening was that all the drawing that I did at home ended up being my own kind of personal education. And so by the time I got to art school, I was pretty much up to par with everybody, but I never got any formal art training until that day, until that moment of getting into art school. And I originally, like I said, I originally wanted to get into animation and I remember signing up for my first animation course and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. You know, you would spend hours just trying to make like five seconds of animated, you know, film on a computer. And I thought there has to be a better way to tell stories and I remember um, there was a children's book illustration course that was taught by this lovely uh, instructor. Her name was Deborah Lattimore. And she, you know, she just kind of broke down the ins and outs of children's publishing and how friendly it was. And, you know, the format, you know, learning that picture books are typically 32 pages and how to break into the business, sending out portfolio pieces and, and things like that. And it just felt like a, it felt like a, a very palatable way of telling stories uh, for kids. And so um, once I took that course, I really devoted my entire focus of art school into that. Uh, and then, gosh, there's an organization called SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And, um, and I, I, remember, I remember signing up for it and then going to the big national conference and uh, I had my portfolio and I had my dummy book. And this man, uh, Arthur Levine, who some of you may know is the editor of Harry Potter, you know, he, uh, he finds my portfolio, he finds my first dummy book and he gives me a two book deal right on the spot. And that, uh, that, was, my, <laughs> that was my instant foray into children's publishing. You know, I'm sorry, I don't have one of these like stories about struggle of breaking into the business. I, I went to a children's book conference and one of the one of the biggest editors in the business just said, I want to work with you. <laughs> that's that's really my break into the business. And I've been at this for about, I think, I think this is my 18th year in the business now. That's incredible. I mean, it's a testament to you. I mean, your work is incredible. And it's like when you look at so many books, we know which ones are yours. It's like they stand out. And it also shows kids that you know sometimes your dreams are going to be different than your parents and that's okay um, right, right. because you're scared I know I was like okay like I've always wanted to be a teacher and my mom was a high school English teacher but I have friends who their parents were like we don't want you to be teachers so it's very interesting to see how most parents though like dream they want you to dream big and my friends talked to their parents and it was like well of course you can do whatever you want maybe we don't really want you to be a teacher but if that's what you want to do then go for it so Sure, a great sure. story. Great story. <laughs> so let's talk about picture books. Let's talk about why do you think they're so important and why parents and teachers need to really change the narrative that picture books are for just little kids. Um, I think we should start with the whole concept of how hard it is to actually make a picture book. Um, you know, and when I when I say that, you know, every time you talk to somebody, I think they always think that it's very easy that you know, books are very didactic. They have to preach a lesson. 
and really actually the worst picture books are the ones that are very, you know, preachy, you know, you don't want to be so, uh, you don't want to beat the lesson over the head or not even have uh, a lesson at all, for say. Um, but uh, really the effort is the economy of words. Uh, you know, like I said, picture books are 32 pages. There's also, you know, the matter of word count and the idea that uh, as a picture book, you have to find a balance between uh, images and uh, words. And so the brevity of it is the hardest part, you know. Um, you know, I work in several mediums. I work in graphic novels, I do middle grade. Uh, I do picture books. Picture books by far are the hardest, you know, the hardest things to do. And a lot of it is just trying to encapsulate uh, an entire story, you know, build a character, build a plot and everything all, in, you know, from beginning, middle and end all into 32 pages. It's a very difficult thing. It's, it's um, you know, it may not often be appreciated, but uh, in terms of the basics of storytelling, you know, it is the most um, palatable thing that a child can grasp to kind of just learn the basics of reading and storytelling and, and so forth. Um, and it done well, um, you know, can, can just really uh, hit that nerve in the brain about um, what it is that you want to uh, communicate in a story. Um, you know, you can do good boy, you can do good stories, uh, but like to make a really impactful, meaningful uh, story that will really land with kids, uh, I think it really comes down to communicating to them in a level that's almost, in a way, personal. Um, there are little things about childhood that you might, for example, think that was something only you were familiar with or something that you only did as a quirk growing up. Um, but it might be it might be an idea that's shared by you know everyone else. And, and the beauty of picture books is that opportunity to communicate and to just tell everybody that we, you know we're all similar in lots of ways and um, you know, the beauty of, of, of communicating to kids is that, you know, there's this unbiased uh, willingness to take in something without thinking there's some kind of cynical agenda um, that comes with it. Um, and, you know, I remember, I remember I would talk to, I remember I would talk to uh, some of my author friends who would write for the older audience, you know, they'd be young adult authors or things like that. And they'd go to a school and I remember at one point I thought, my gosh, you're really lucky that you get to talk to high school kids. And this one particular author, friend of mine, he said, are you, are you crazy? You know, like if you go speak to kids, if you speak to kids about picture books, they'll hang on to every word you say. They love everything that you say. You know, you could say that you have a cat and suddenly 20, 30 hands go up with, I have a cat too. You know, if you go to a junior high, you know, I think they've lived life a little bit. They've become a little... I don't know, cynical about things and, and, and what they're being fed. And so the majority of them probably wouldn't even care if you're in that room. And so the beauty about picture books um, is that, you, you know, you're trying to break down the idea of storytelling and its most basic form, which is, it's really difficult to do well, but if you can, um, you know, you get to influence, um, you know, a tiny little mind who, who is willing to take up the story and just really take in and listen to what you have to say. And I think that's something beautiful about picture books. Um, and again, like I said, it's, it's not as easy as most people think, but uh, if done well, uh, you end up having, you know, uh, a little fan for life. Yeah, you have lots of fans. 
many fans. I hope you know how many fans you have. <laughs> I'll never forget when I um, got to learn about Drawn Together. I hadn't read it and I picked it up and I didn't really know a lot about it. And I started reading through it and I was like, oh my gosh, this book is amazing. And it connects to my so many of my students' lives. And I brought it into my classroom. I don't know if you know, but I teach fifth grade. And I was showing my kids and like they were hooked. And it was like the book that year that got my students to understand that picture books are not just for, as they would say, babies, but they're for all. And so hats off to you. And you're so right with everything you said. I taught during the pandemic, I taught a fifth and a sixth grade and like the sixth graders, they, they liked it, but the fifth graders were so into it. And the sixth graders were like, I'm too cool. And I'm like, mm, you're not that cool, but we'll, we'll let you feel like you're that cool. Um, okay. So I want to know, I, I have this theory. So I want to see if my theory's right. What were you okay. like as a reader growing up? Did you like it? Did you struggle? Uh, to be honest, I, I struggled a lot with reading when I was a kid. Uh, reason being is uh, my parents came from Thailand. And uh, so when they came here to America, they weren't too familiar with a lot of the Western classics that you would know. You know, they didn't know Corduroy. They didn't know Goodnight Moon. They didn't know any of these books. Uh, and it wasn't until it wasn't until like kindergarten that I got a good injection of, of stories uh, and with that said, my parents, they were also, they were also utility based readers, meaning that, uh, the, the, the act of reading served a purpose to, you know, personal improvement, but not so much in terms of, um, nourishing the mind in entertaining ways. Uh, meaning for example, uh, you know, if you wanted to get better at, if you wanted to get better at science, you should read a biology book. If you wanted to get better at math, you should read a math book. But, you know, there wasn't that much to be said about reading for pleasure or nourishing, you know, that that creative uh, mind. Um, and so with that, I, I really felt like I was behind the curve uh, with that aspect. So I remember I remember going into my, you know, the school public library and just uh, seeing all these books, but being a little overwhelmed because there's so many books, but not really knowing where to start. You know, and then you'd have a lot of kids that would just rush over, you know, straight to a particular section saying, oh, I love this book. I love this book. And me just kind of thinking like, I don't I don't know where to begin. I was a little overwhelmed. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, I had a slow start with reading. I did, you know, you know, when you when you start off in school and you're, you're, you're teaching, you know, basic phonetics and, and, and vowels and like reading, you know, reading basic words. I got that pretty, pretty easily. But um you know, reading really wasn't the thing that caught my attention. I was more of a, I was, you know, the 1980s were crazy. I was a big cartoon and TV junkie. Um, and it wasn't until I had a friend that introduced me to comics. Uh, and to me, it was just like a little kid's soap opera. And, you know, it started off with Garfield. Uh, and, and I will admit, I think, I think a big draw to it was that I was, to, I was a big fan of the artwork and I just wanted to be able to draw it. Uh, and Garfield was just a funny comic. And so, you know, it's like these bite-sized little three panel comics uh, that you could, you know, there you go. You have the opening line, you have the punchline. There you go, on to the next one. Uh, and I would just inhale all these stories. And, and then, you know, as I got older, like I said, there was a kid in my neighborhood who was a big Marvel Comics collector. 
And, uh, you know, he gave me access to all his comics and I started reading them and just kind of learning, uh, you know, the whole idea of story continuation and just kind of realizing like, oh my gosh, what happens to Spider-Man next month? Uh, and that's what really, really got me into, into reading. Um, and honestly, it wasn't, you know, the whole, it was weird because like you would even go to high school and, um, you know, you'd be told what to read. Oh, everybody, we're going to read Huck Finn. Oh, you know, we're going to read Red Badge of Courage or, 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 or whatever. And, you know, like voluntarily, those wouldn't be the type of titles that I would pick out of a shelf, um, you know, because of comics you know, it did kind of lead me into a path of what I might possibly uh, be into. And so like two big titles that really were a huge influence on me uh, once I started getting into reading was I was a big fan of Encyclopedia Brown uh, oh. by Donald J. Sobol, loved Encyclopedia Brown. And, and I think it was just that format of just like these bite-sized little crimes that, you know, Encyclopedia Brown would, would have to solve in like, oh, I don't know, 12, 16 pages at a time. Like each book came with like, you know, 10 or 12 mysteries. And then I remember, I remember one of the most influential books that I read, uh, like in middle school was The Outsiders. Like that was such a fantastic book. I read The Outsiders. And that that's really when I started, that's really when I started falling in love with reading. And then, you know, eventually like moved on to The Hobbit and all these other titles and things like that. Uh, but I do feel like I was a slow starter, but I eventually learned, um, I, I learned how to love reading because I had people around me uh, who taught me how to curate my tastes. And, and you know, you kind of just, you, you would meet these people and you find out what they found out was passionate to them about stories. And then you kind of just glommed onto that because it was something that you could share and talk about. And it was, you know, if you have friends that have similar interests, you're more likely than not to probably enjoy the same books. I've been in several book clubs growing up, you know, and it's like, you can tell immediately if you're in a book club that you don't like, you're like, I don't want to read The Wind Up Girl. This is terrible, you know? <laughs> so you, you end up leaving and it really, it's hard. It's almost like trying to find the right dentist, you know? Like you're going to this, you're going to this book club. You're like, no, 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 I don't want to read all these. And, you know, you're jumping around. It's, it's, it's a long process, but, you know, when you do finally find the right group of people to share your books with, then, uh, you know, they end up being, you know, friends for life. I love that. I love that so much. And that leads into my next question. So how I had read your book after the fall, but I found your YouTube interview you done with Colby Sharp because mm -hmm. a gal that's in a book club with me, she shared something about you. And then she said, oh, I just finished watching this interview with Colby Sharp and Dan Santat about after the fall. So then I went and listened to it and I was blown away because Dan's going to share a little bit about the inspiration for After the Fall, but I deal with anxiety. And so after hearing his story, it just, I just was like, I'm Dan's biggest fan even more now because this book really spoke to my heart and it let me know I wasn't alone. So tell my listeners a little bit more about what was your inspiration for After the Fall? So I remember After the Fall was this idea that I had way back in art school, really, uh, the whole concept was, uh, well, what happens to Humpty Dumpty after the fall? Like, what if he were to be put back together again? Um, and at the time when I was writing the story, um, this was shortly after winning uh, the Caldecott Medal for Beagle. Uh, after the fall was a title that I wanted to write, um, but 
what I found out after uh, some time of writing is that I, I think the best inspiration that I get is from personal experience and from um, family around me, perhaps you want to say like maybe a muse. Uh, and in this case, uh, you know, my wife had spent many years, almost her entire life dealing with anxiety and depression uh, to the point where, you know, it was just so, it was so hard for her uh, in her adult years, especially after having kids to kind of just get through day, you know, get through the day-to-day -day, uh, life schedule because, you know, she had a full-time job. Uh, we had two young kids. Uh, and, you know, once we, well, once we reflect back on it, we realized that she was going through postpartum depression after our first child. Uh, also couple that with the fact that we were doing a home remodel, like we added, you know, we added to our home and redid a kitchen and stuff. And, um, you know, just going through day-to-day -day was really tough for her. Um, and, you know, there were moments where it was, um, it was a real struggle, uh, especially for our marriage. Um, you know, the thing about people with anxiety is that, you know, you tend to avoid triggers because, you know, that'll just create more anxiety. And it got to the point where, you know, she was just slowly kind of cutting things out of her life uh, to just cope with getting through the day. But eventually it got to a point where it affected her life so much that um, she wasn't doing anything. You know, she would go to work because, you know, she was terrified about losing her job, which she wasn't in any way like threatened with. Uh, she would come home and then she would just go back to work in the studio. But like, I would be left with kids. It was a very lonely thing, you know? Um, and, and, and coupled with that is that eventually, you know, you know, there are connections uh, of depression and anxiety, which also uh, tie together with, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorders. And, and you know, there's a day where, um, you know, she was just kind of measuring her hair. She got a haircut and she was measuring her hair. And I remember for an hour, hour and a half, she was just like looking in the mirror saying, is my hair even just asking me this question 40, 50, 60 times. And I'm just like, honey, does this seem right to you? Uh, and she, I think it was that moment. I mean, I remember at the time I, I, was, I was really upset because it wasn't the fact that I was having problems helping her with the anxiety, but it was, it was the problem that, you know, it took that measure. It took, it took, it took realizing that she was being very compulsive about her hair, that, that she realized that she needed, you know, to seek some kind of help. But regardless of that, you know, um, it was, this, it was this case where, you know, she went to a, she went to a doctor. She wasn't a big believer of, of you know, like medication and things like that, but um, we got to a really dark place in our marriage. And I, and I just felt like, you know, like if you want this to work, I mean, I can't, I can't live like this. And I don't think you can live like this either. Um, she eventually took some meds. Uh, and then I just like it four weeks into it, I could already see a, a huge shift in her personality. And, you know, the doctor told her, you will notice something in six to eight weeks. And I remember four weeks into it, just the edge, the edge of, you know, her anxiety was just being rounded out. It was just being, you know, it was really getting softer. And you would think that someone would feel better about that, but it actually did the opposite effect. You know, it, it made her clamp up even more saying, you know, this, this medication is doing something to me. I used to think that danger is around every corner. Now I don't feel that way. Something's wrong. And I just remember thinking, look, if you want this marriage to work, you need to just, you owe it to this family to just stick it out for the six to eight weeks, like the doctor recommended. And, you know, six to eight weeks went by and it was like, it was, 
it was, she was like a completely different person. It was like the woman that I met in college. And, and, you know, she, she says to me, she says, you know, like, I don't know how I live my life like that. And so working on after the fall, you know, I, I come from, I, you know, my education in art school, I really owe a lot of my storytelling ability from, from just studying advertising and the whole concept of symbology. And so the beauty about a subject like Humpty Dumpty is that uh, with symbology, if you were to give an image, then it should elicit a reaction or some kind of uh, message. So for example, if I were to show you a light bulb uh, that either signifies uh, electricity or an idea, right? If I just showed you a light bulb, if I showed you, you know, a glass of milk, you'll probably think about cookies because that's just, that's the brilliance of like the God Milk campaign, right? If I just say Humpty Dumpty, the first thing you automatically think of is the fall. And so in that respect, completely solves your first act. You don't have to build the story of what the problem is. You know, you just say Humpty Dumpty, you know, eventually got put back together. You don't have to start the story by saying, okay, everyone, there was this egg, sat on a wall, he fell off the wall. You know, you don't have to do that. You just say Humpty Dumpty and everyone already understands. Oh, okay, we know this character. Well, what happens next? Uh, and so a good chunk of this story after the fall is devoted towards uh, the recovery of, of the mental, you know, the mental anguish that comes after a fall, you know? So I equate it a lot to like, you know, kids, um, you know, maybe falling off a bicycle or something, you know, something that's traumatic. They probably don't want to get up and do it again. Um, and this, I really glommed on to what, what my wife was going through at the time and realizing that by overcoming that obstacle, you know, you evolve into something greater. And this is something that my editor and I were talking about in the original draft for After the Fall. The idea was that uh, they put him back together, but there was one piece missing and it was back up at the wall and it was built into like a little bird nest that was at the top of the, at the, top of the, of the wall. And in order to be whole again, he had to climb up the wall to get it. And it was like this little, I remember it was like this little eggshell piece that was shaped like a heart. And that was the one thing that he needed to put himself back together with. But that complicates things because by doing that, you're not talking about the anxiety. It becomes uh, an idea about like, I can only feel good if I'm perfect. You know, it's about perfection. You know, it changes the message just by a slight little bit, you know? I need to get that last piece and put it back together so that I can be perfect again. And that's not the message that I wanted to do. You know, I wanted him to have this achievement of overcoming the fear, which is just simply climbing the wall. But then as a result, there's a reward that comes with it. And so, uh, you know, talking with my editor and we would just have these long conversations uh, about what the ending should be and why, and why my initial ending didn't work. And then, you know, one day we were just playing around with the idea of like, oh, well, what if he just like, what if like a bird just like burst out of him? And then we said, well, wait, why not? You know? And so the reward is the ability to move on with your life and become something greater. And that's where, you know, that's where the idea of Humpty Dumpty, because it's, it's fascinating because why is Humpty Dumpty an egg? In no way, shape or form in the nursery rhyme, 
Is it mentioned that Humpty Dumpty is an egg? And yet, in the nursery rhyme, he is an egg. In fact, the old tale of, of uh, the, the origins of the, of the nursery rhyme, it, it's, about, it's about a giant cannon that protected the town of Colchester outside of London, you know? And the name of the cannon is Humpty Dumpty, and it sat on this wall, and it was so big, so heavy, that you know there was this there was this uh, army that was coming to take over the city, and, and the cannon actually was so big, it fell off the wall and it broke, and uh, as a result they couldn't put it back together again because it was so too big and clunky. Colchester got sacked, got taken over, uh, but that's the origin of the Humpty Dumpty story. Um, but the, again, like there's no there's no mention of him being an egg, um, and and the great thing about this ending that we had was. I don't know if you've ever done a magic trick, but like when you when you find out that it's just like one simple little trick that you have to do to make the trick work, it's almost always so obvious that you're thinking that every time you do the trick, that the person who's watching it is going to figure it out, you know. And so, I gosh, I remember writing this story and just looking at it and thinking, will people get it? Will people understand? And the beautiful part about it is that by the time they're done everyone stops and they gasp and they say, oh my gosh, he's an egg. You know, it's there, right? You know, like right in front of everybody's eyes. Uh, but it isn't until you see the wings sprout and he hatches and flies off that everyone says, oh my gosh, of course, he's an egg. And that's, it's, uh, gosh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's my proudest work. It's a love letter to my wife. Um, and, you know, she, you know, she appreciates it just as much as I do. Uh, so much so that, uh, you know, she got a bird feather tattoo on her back and uh, I have a bird feather tattoo on my arm. And so, you know, now, now we have to stay married for the rest of our lives. I think that's the, I think that's the rules. That's the moral of the story. No, thank right. you so much for being so open and sharing that with me and the listeners because it's very vulnerable, but I think it's so important. And especially now with us all being in COVID times, as the kids like to say, and right, right. mental health is so important. And I know your book will be read in my classroom and all the classrooms at my school next year. So why do you think that having SEL books in a classroom are so important for kids who are maybe going through mental health issues or their parents are going through and they don't know how to understand it? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because, you know, I think a lot about my childhood and about growing up during that time. And, you know, a big thing about growing up in the 80s or, you know, just kind of being the child of baby boomers or being a baby boomer or, or something for that matter. It's just a lot of it was just like tough it out, just yeah. tough it out, you know. Um, and it's funny, like I was I was watching I was watching the movie Patton uh a couple of weeks ago because it was on it was like on the turner classics you know and i'm watching Patton, and there's that there's that poor soldier who's, who's got severe ptsd and Patton just comes up and smacks him in the face he's like come on be a man and you're like oh my gosh this is crazy you know like you know like um i i do absolutely love the fact that mental health is being talked about these days because it's funny so when when after the fall came out a lot of peers that, that I know in, in, in children's publishing, uh, I, I, I don't know, I guess, I guess my, I guess that line of work that, you know, my particular field, there's a lot of people who have, you know, who have anxiety, you know, it's a very isolated kind of profession. You stay at your home, you get to work. It's perfect for someone who, who, who is who's shy or, you know, is, is, is not someone who's, 
very comfortable with dealing with large crowds, for example. Um, and, and one thing that I found really shocking was how many people I know in my life who have some kind of anxiety. So much so that I almost think maybe something's wrong with me because I don't have anxiety, you know? It's just, it's, it's really odd. So I think, I think it's much more prevalent than most people realize. And it definitely is something that needs to be addressed, you know? So, um, you know, as, 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 it was always stigmatized to not talk about your feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, you know, for me, like, it's always been, I was never, I was never very comfortable with the whole male toxicity, you know, the locker room and just talking like, you know, about things that guys talk about, you know, the, the boy locker talk, like it just, it would never sat well with me, you know? Um, and so I just love that. I love that we're breaking these walls down and giving boys the opportunity or girls or whoever, just the opportunity to just understand that it's okay to be in touch with our feelings and to feel yes. like, you know, cause I mean, empathy for me is a very big thing. So I, there was a, there's actually a New York Times article that came out, <clears throat> I think it was the other day. And it was talking about sitcoms from the nineties where uh, you found, or the nineties and early two thousands where you're finding a lot of these characters who um, they're funny, but they're not likable characters. And, you know, they're talking about how these days uh, the culture of, of uh, the zeitgeist of pop culture and, and, and media, like it's slowly turning into, uh, you know, the Ted Lasso types, the ones who are like very positive, the ones who are very, you know, uh, uh, warm and, and empathetic. And, and, you know, and I do feel like I do feel like the, you know, the, the things that we imbibe in culture do reflect the generation of kids that we grow up with. You know, like, look, I mean. Yes. Do I find South Park to be funny? Sure. But do I like seeing every 13 year old kid act like Eric Cartman? Absolutely not. Like it's, it's, it's annoying, you know? And so, you know, you have these ebb and flows in social culture and, and I just, I feel like we're digging out of this era, you know, believe me, growing up in the eighties, you know, it's like being Asian American, uh, it wasn't great. You know, it's like you, you would watch a movie from the eighties and if there was ever an Asian person on the screen, they were always meant to be the butt of a joke, you know? And so it does have that effect on, 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 on you growing up because there are those cases where people think, oh, well, that's what you are to society. You're just, you're like the butt of the joke, like that's how it is. And then you yourself, like growing up, I remember thinking to myself like, oh, you know, like maybe I want to, you know, maybe I want to, um, you know, write a story about a hero. Like maybe I want to make movies, but the weird thing was that I never saw any, you know, Asian Americans, you know, being the lead roles in, you know, in movies or TV shows. And so uh, at a very young age, I just immediately thought like, oh, well, I'll never be that, you know? So the idea of being, you know, a movie director or an actor or something like that, which, you know, was appealing at the time was never in my mind, but I did know that to some capacity, I wanted to be a storyteller, you know, but I settled you know, and now you're getting to see this dialogue open up and you're starting to, you know, kind of understand, you know, what other cultures, what other people are coming from uh, and talking about subjects that, you know, 15, 20 years ago probably wouldn't even see the light of day, you know? And so 
um, yeah, this dialogue about, about just, you know, empathy and feelings and things like that. I do feel like it, it, it's going to, in the long run, we might not see the results now, but I promise you 15, 20 years from now, you're just going to see a much more empathetic, more caring uh, society, you know? And that's, it just starts with these simple roots and then it just grows. I agree 100%. Like growing up, I remember like, we didn't really talk about our feelings that much either. And now I'm like all about feelings and it's just so important for all kids right. to know that. Our generation isn't necessarily the healthiest. <laughs> nope. Okay, so I have, I love getting, see if we can give me secrets out of you about what you're doing next. I know you have a lot of great things coming up in the works, but where do you get your ideas from your books besides like life experience? And then what are some new goodies coming out soon? Gosh, a lot of my ideas come from, gosh, they come from a lot of places. Like I, it might be an article that I read. Uh, it might be from uh, other stories that I read and maybe I have a twist to it. Um, but I think most importantly, I think there is something valuable to be gained from boredom. Um, just Say it, just, say it again. The, 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 I think, so the, the beauty of boredom is that uh, you let your mind wander, you know, you kind of, there is something that your brain does that it's not normally doing when it's actively doing, you know, tasks. Um, and, you know, in the first 10 years of my career, a lot of it was just me sprinting from one job to another and saying, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. But the real creativity for me comes from when I just sit and I just rest and I let my mind get bored and wander. And then it just starts doing these really weird, surreal, like, oh, well, what if, you know, you kind of ask, you ask these silly questions like, well, what if this happened to this? Like, what if this went here? And those are the questions that you want to ask in order to come up with some really meaningful concepts to stories, you know? And so, um, yeah, the beauty of boredom and, you know, taking in information to use kind of like as a pool of, of knowledge that you can use as puzzle pieces and just kind of take these ideas and just see if, you know, what pieces fit to come up with a, a picture, if you will. I mean, I, I guess that's the best metaphor I can come up with is think of ideas as separate puzzle pieces. And then you're trying to assemble a picture for something that might come to light, that might be something that you might want to write about. Um, and so, gosh, I mean, I've had, I've had book ideas that have been incubated for, you know, eight years, 10 years. Sometimes they come really quickly, like in a matter of, you know, months. Um, you know, so right now uh, I'm working on a memoir. I'm, wearing, I'm working on a memoir graphic novel, uh, which was inspired by this conversation that my 13 year old son had. And I mean, I guess I really have to, I, I, I really have to treasure this moment because this isn't a moment that I thought he would ever want with me. And the question was, when was the first time you fell in love? And I thought about it and it made me think about this trip to Europe that I took when I was 13 years old. And again, keep in mind, this was like in the 1980s and so, you know, we were like these latchkey kids and the whole idea of going on a three-week trip to Europe, you would get on a bus and then the tour guide would show you around a city and then you'd have lunch. And then like after lunch, it'd be like one in the afternoon and they'd say, 
okay, kids, why don't you go out and enjoy the country and then we'll meet at this restaurant at five, you know? And you're thinking, oh my gosh, uh, as a parent today, I would never let my kids do that, right? You know, like uh, just let them run around Switzerland for, for, you know, like half a day, that sounds safe. Anyway, um, so this memoir is just about, it's for me, like junior high was a really, really tough life, you know, period in my life. It's, um, gosh, you just, it's, you know, the idea of just being stuck in a building uh, with, with a bunch of, you know, preteen kids that are just loaded up on hormones. It's just, it's just a horrible experiment, right? And so I really came out just really emotionally shook, you know, after, after junior high, like a lot of just really lack of self-esteem, just kind of not liking who I was, uh, but going to Europe and just having these adventures and really rediscovering who I was, it's kind of, it's a coming of age story. So uh, I'm working on that right now. I'm actually in the middle of, um, I'm in the middle of the pencil work, uh, hopefully getting the pencil work done, uh, you know, maybe the end of the year colored and then have it coming out spring 23. Uh, and then I have a book coming out this March. It's a graphic novel that I've been working on uh, for the last, gosh, 10 years. It's called The Aquanaut. And that is a story about uh, the sea creatures that find this old diving suit and they convert it into a land walking device uh, in hopes that they're hoping to find this place that's kind of like a sea world, uh, thinking that it would be this Shangri-La that they can go to that'll keep them safe from all the dangers of the world. Uh, but there's a whole complicated story that's behind that. Uh, they meet the daughter of a captain who died on the ship that they were on. Uh, and it's all about letting go of, of memories uh, or just habits, just the legacy of someone uh, in order to move on and live your own life. Um, and it just, it's, um, yeah, it's a very personal story. My father, he died back in March. And so as I finished this story, you know, like the pieces of the puzzle really starting to ring true to me about just these little habits that you keep because you feel like if you give them up, you're going to forget the person. And really sometimes the best thing is to, you know, uh, just understand that those memories, while they are fantastic to remember them by, shouldn't really encapsulate your life, you know? Um, so, you know, I guess the best way to describe it, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like Star Trek. If, you know, the Enterprise was a diving suit and the crew was like these little endangered sea creatures that are operating it with like little, uh, you know, little controls. Uh, and then it's just coupled with this very heartfelt story about dealing with the loss of a loved one. So that one's called the Aquanaut that comes out in March next year. Um, this September, I have a picture book coming out with uh, this great author named Jonathan Stutzman. It's called Bears a Bear. Uh, and the, the manuscript was a really charming story about, um, you know, uh, a little girl who grows up with this bear. And then by the end of the movie and, you know, the, the end of the story, you, you learn that the bear is actually like her teddy bear. And, you know, she bequeaths it to her little daughter by the end of the book. Uh, and then I have a third Frankenstein book that's coming out uh, in a couple weeks. Um, and then, you know, I'm just working on, I'm working on other, I'm working on other uh, graphic novel ideas. Uh, working on, um, I'm working on longer form material these days. That is so awesome. I mean, just all these amazing ideas and it's not like the same 
It's like so mm-hmm. many different areas. What a gift that you have, you're able to do that. If you could give one piece of advice to authors or illustrators, what would it be? Uh, I think the most important thing about improving as a writer or someone who is a creator is developing a sense of taste. Um, You might want to, if you read something, if you watch something, I think one of the more important things is to ask why you like it and what it means to you and why you think it's good, but then also understand wow, how it impacts other people. Um, you know, cause I think a lot of times people will imbibe something and they'll say, well, that was special. But like, if you really want to imitate something, if you really want to become that thing that you aspire to be, you need to understand what it is that makes it click for you and other people. Uh, Meaning just because you might find something to be magical doesn't mean everyone else is. And so you need to understand every perspective, you know, and and also, uh, you know, so developing a taste comes in many different ways. Um, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it's wrong to imitate. I don't think, you know, but, but there is this moment in your growth where you also have to learn how to transition and develop your own voice. So, uh, in, in, you know, in art school, we say, we don't imitate, we appropriate, we take little bits of pieces of things and we make it our own. So for me, a big part of my education came from, uh, you know, oh, I like the way Mac Barnett did this. I like the way Marla Frazee did this. I like the way Raina Telgemeier does this, you know, and things like that. And then you just take little bits of pieces of people that inspire you and you create an amalgam and it eventually becomes your own because um, you're just inspired by other things. And I, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with uh, you know, taking little bits and pieces of things that you appreciate to create something new. It's just, um, I think creativity comes in all different forms. Uh, but the most important part is that uh, you do have this freedom and this willingness to experiment and not, and don't be afraid to be wrong, but just most importantly, just understand why you're wrong or, um, you know, the biggest, the biggest obstacle for people's growth is to be so precious and so protective of the thing that you're working on. You know, like I've done manuscript critiques where, you know, someone has been working away on this manuscript for months and months and months, sometimes years, and then you show it to them and it's just not working. They don't immediately say, oh, okay, well, let me try this. You know, it's, well, I think you're just one opinion and I really treasured this thing that I created because I spent years on it. Uh, You know, the first thing that I do when I work with my editor, the most important thing, the most useful thing about like my editor is that she is the gateway. She's the gatekeeper for me to share anything with the world. If I can't convince her something's wrong, then the immediate reaction isn't, well, you know, like you don't know what you're talking about. The immediate reaction by my standards is if I can't convince you that this is why this should be told this way, then I haven't communicated it clearly enough. And that comes with, that comes with the knowledge of taste. It, it comes with, you know, the inspiration that you get from other people and just trying to understand, you know, what it is that people want, but not deliberately trying to cater to just the consumer's needs. No, I mean, that's 
That's such great advice because you might think it's really good, but then another person reads it and it's like, well, what about this factor? What about that factor? And then you're like, I didn't think about that. So, right. Absolutely. You just have to be open. You have to be very open and vulnerable to, to criticism. Yes. That's another great piece of advice. Well, is there anything you want to share that we didn't talk about today that you think that bookful people would want to hear? Um, gosh, when, when is this going to air? When do you think this is going to air? It's going to air October 11th. Oh, October 11th. Okay. Cause I was going to say that there's a big SCBWI conference, the 50th anniversary. Uh, and I'm going to be giving the closing keynote on Sunday. Um, you know, just, I think, I think the thing I want everybody to know is just be just, you know, right now, just, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, just take care of your mental health, be, you know, be kind to everybody else. You know, it's funny that I'm reading these articles about people going to restaurants and just being rude. Cause it's like, Oh, we spent 15 months and we just, you know, we, we forgot how to communicate with people. Like, it's not like we suddenly just, you know, immediately become jerks because we just haven't talked to people for 15 months. There's like a common decency, you know, just be kind to people, you know, just, I mean, that's, it's, we're all going through this together. And, you know, like, let's just, let's just take a minute and just understand that, you know, this isn't, you know, hopefully going to be forever, but, you know, you don't want to look back at this 10, 15 years from now and say like, I was a mess and I was like lashing out at people. Like it, it, it doesn't help anybody. No, that yeah. kindness, all we always tell my students, kindness always wins. Like that's right. most important. Okay, my last two questions are just quick answers. And I would love to know, what is your all time favorite picture book that gave you a confetti moment? Uh, the, uh, what was it? Uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. <gasps> That's a good one. That's a good one. And then what picture book can you not wait to come out in 2021 or 2022? Uh, I have a new picture book coming out with Min Lei. It's called The Blur. And uh, I'm not sure when it comes out next year, but it is about, it's about the, the, it's about how quickly life just flashes before your eyes. Oh, what a great book for parents and for, oh my gosh, you two are a dynamic duo. So I cannot wait to read that. Well, Dan, where can my Confetti Moments listeners find you to learn more about you and your great work? Uh, you can find me on social media. I'm typically at uh, dsantat, uh, or you can find me on my website, uh, beacleandfriends.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on Confetti Moments today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Hey, teachers. How are you? I am just so thankful that you have been listening to the Confetti Moments podcast. It is something that I love to do. I love to share my love of picture books and books and the love of teachers with all of you. And you know what I would love as well is, hey, why don't you share this podcast with another friend to spread the magic with them and leave a comment. Let teachers know, what do you love about this podcast? What do you want me to share more of? I would love to hear from you. All you have to do is go on to wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review. Thanks so much. And as always, open the magic. Thank you so much for tuning into the Confetti Moments podcast. I hope each story or tip you heard today brings the love of reading into your heart. Take this confetti and sprinkle it all over the children in your classroom or home. See you back here next Monday to open the magic.